This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 119, the ninth part of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. This episode will share strange stories about corruption that entered the sport in the 1800s to fix races and affect wagers. Guess what? I've authored and published a book on ultra-running history, now available on Amazon, entitled Frank Hart, the First Black Ultra-Running Star. In 1879, Hart broke the ultra-running color barrier and then broke the world's six-day record with 565 miles, fighting racism with his feet and fists. I'm sure you're going to like this book. Find it on Amazon. Search for Frank Hart, that's H-A-R-T, Frank Hart Davy Crockett, and you should pull it up. With the great success of ultra-running, known as pedestrianism in the 1800s, and the millions of dollars of legal wagering involved, corruption raised its ugly head in the sport. Match-fixing was the most common form of corruption used. This practice made it possible for bookmakers to maximize their profits by sharing some of that profit with those connected to the races, including the runners and trainers, to execute a fix. In 1894, a strange story was published in the Washington Post about a six-day race that occurred back in 1880 in Denver, Colorado. The story was widely published and affected public opinion about the sport and the corruption involved. The six-day race was organized by Mark Thal, a celebrated agent and promoter. Thal was born in Montgomery, Alabama and went to California with his family in 1865. After living in Placerville for four years, he ran away from home and joined the circus at the age of 11. He rose to become one of the best-known theatrical men in the country. Thal was referred to as a hustler and had been involved in organizing six-day races as early as 1879 in San Francisco, where he was arrested for running off with $85 of the proceeds. The following year, he went to Denver and established a theatrical business. The race in Denver was held in a big tent with a track going around the edge with raised seats in the middle. About 16 runners started, including a rookie no one knew, Bill Daly, who did not look very strong. Another local runner participated, Rocky Mountain Sam, who traveled around the track with an impressive long stride. The race was popular and kept the tent full of spectators. By day four, young Daly caught up with the leader, Rocky Mountain Sam. It was reported, The pace had been so swift that day that Sam was all used up. His feet were swollen and he was sick, but he kept on after daily. Most of the other runners had dropped out. It was a two-man race, or so they thought. After arrest, everyone was amazed how Daly would come out so fresh, skipping around and whistling Yankee Doodle. Sam's backers encouraged him and even had a brass band march along with him. On the last day, a large crowd came to watch the finish. It got down to the last hour. Bill Daly was running easy and gaining one lap in five on poor old Sam. In the end, Daly won by over 40 miles and received a check for $3,000. 
However, something seemed wrong, and Sam made an investigation. It didn't take him long to find out that it was a fixed race. You see, that Bill Daly was twins. His twin brother, Jim, looked just like him to a dot. Bill would walk until he got tired, and then he would go in the tent, and in an hour or so, Jim would come out. It appeared that the race organizer, Thal, was in on the hoax. He put on another race in Oregon with the Dailies doing the same thing, and it was discovered that with the fixed win, the Dailies split the winnings with Thal. But Thal got the last laugh when his check to the Dailies bounced. They are lucky they didn't pull this scam in England. In 1902, a trainer there sent a Leeds athlete into a race impersonating another runner. They were discovered, arrested, and sent to prison for six months doing hard labor. Bribery was a prevalent method to fix matches. Like the Black Sox scandals in baseball, runners would be bribed to throw races. It was 1919, and on the south side of Chicago, the White Sox were favored to win the World Series. So when they lost to the Cincinnati Reds that year, even with shoeless Joe Jackson slugging it out with 12 hits, baseball fans were shocked. Eight White Sox players were later accused of conspiring with gamblers to throw the World Series, including shoeless Joe, whose exact role is still disputed. He and the others were banned for life from professional baseball. It became very tempting for a runner experiencing great pain to take the easy way out to reduce that pain by accepting money and going slower or quitting altogether. Ephraim Clough was born on Prince Edward Island, Canada, and immigrated to the United States in 1872 at the age of 17. He was a shoemaker and settled in Arlington, Massachusetts. He started six-day ultra-running in 1879 and quickly rose to become one of the elites in the sport, finishing with 460 miles in the Rose Belt. In May 1881, he competed for the O'Leary International Belt in Madison Square Garden. There were heavy bets on John Hughes, the defending champion, to play second in the race. As the race progressed on day five, Clough was in second place doing well. Some bookmakers had been visiting Clough's room and afterwards his pace slowed down, allowing John Hughes to overtake his second place position. When Clough had scored his 502 miles, he entered his cabin and shortly afterwards emerged dressed in his everyday clothes and announced that he would walk no longer. This was a shock because he looked like the freshest runner on the track. He gave various excuses all of a flimsy character, and finally bluntly said that he would not stay in the race until $500 was placed in his hand. Clough had clearly been bribed to quit. Daniel O'Leary, the race manager, didn't want to see him quit and promised him a check of $500 to stay in the race, but Clough declined, saying that checks were no good. He went to leave the garden. Old Sport Campana was sitting at the garden door when Clough left. Campana, in language more forcible than polite, upbraided Clough for leaving the track and asked for the price of the dozen bottles of imported ginger ale which he had purchased for Clough. Clough told him to collect the debt in Hades, and Campana walked away in disgust. The impression prevailed that Clough had been captured by the bookmakers. O'Leary was furious. 
Later, word came out that Klaus' backers were offered $12,000 to take their man off the track. Klaus left the sport, moved to Minnesota with his brothers, turned to farming, and died in 1927 at the age of 72. Bookmakers even tried to bribe some of the most respected runners. Benjamin Curran was from New York City. He served for two years in the Civil War with the 21st Cavalry and then became a longshoreman on the New York City docks. Like so many others, he tried his hand at pedestrianism in 1879 and became an instant hero of his fellow longshoremen as he achieved 428 miles in the first O'Leary belt race held in October 1879 in Madison Square Garden. Kern must not have aged well. Even though he was in his mid-forties, he was referred to as Old Ben Curran. One report said, The ancient longshoreman looked like a member of the first Napoleon's old guard. He was described as having a, quote, battered face, weather-beaten, and became more worn day after day. During his first six-day race competition in 1879, at the age of 46, betting odds were largely against him because he looked so old. Spectators were stunned that such an old man could do so well pushing towards second place. He proved himself throughout a most persistent veteran. To all appearances he bore about his person as he walked a good many perplexing aches and pains that he strangled these as well as he could and pushed closely for second place. His valiant march was applauded on every hand. Kern milked the attention by overstating his age by about five years. In March 1881, at the age of 47, Curran again competed for the O'Leary belt in Madison Square Garden. He was a fan favorite because people thought he was so elderly. The old man's legs are gnarled and twisted like the limb of an oak, but they have done better service than anyone ever expected they would. The press was critical having such an old man in the race. There is nothing to be hoped for by the friends of Ben Curran, as his aged frame and inelastic limbs can scarcely stand the present strain put upon them. A man of his years would be better employed working at his legitimate daily labor than competing with younger men in a contest that demands youth and elasticity. Large wagers had been made that runner Dick LeCouse of Boston, Massachusetts would finish in second or third place. Curran was performing so well, 12 miles ahead, that he was disrupting these wagers. Lacouse's backers boldly approached Curran to give up third place for $1,500 worth of wager tickets. Unfortunately for the longshoreman's reputation, he accepted the $1,500 bribe. The fix was in. The fix was in. Somebody play me the blues. When the race manager, James Kelly, heard of it, he immediately wanted to stamp out the corruption going on. He saw the tickets in Curran's hut, and Curran said he was used up and was quitting. Kelly threatened to bring in the reporters to witness a doctor declaring that Curran was perfectly able to continue running. If Curran cared to be exposed, he could accept the bribe. Curran decided that he wouldn't leave the track, and Mr. Kelly then gave him a $500 bill bonus. Curran then stuck the bill on the end of a walking stick as a signal to those who knew he had declined to be bribed that the $500 was a, quote, 
Reward for Roman Virtue. The spectators were confused, so the race director made a speech that said he paid $500 out of his own pocket to make sure that the race continued. It is interesting to note that Kelly's business was a bookmaking firm and that he had been a pioneer in American legal gambling. Yes, bookmakers were even putting on pedestrian events. Curran indeed finished in third place with an impressive 504 miles. LaCausse finished with 489 miles in fourth place. Curran continued to race six-day events until his last in 1888 at the age of 55. The race did not go well, and he quit on day three exhausted and broken-hearted at his failure. Samuel Day passed around his hat, and $50 was raised for the old man, who they thought would never be able to run again. He became an invalid and died in 1907 at the age of 74. Daniel D. Burns from Elmira, New York, came into the sport in 1879 as a 19-year-old newsboy. He gained great fame for allegedly walking a horse to death during a race in Chicago in 1880 where he reached 578 miles in 6.5 days. He raced in many other six-day races and placed well against some of the best in the world. In Atlanta, Georgia, in May 1885, a three-day walking match was held. Burns, age 25, was doing well and expected to win. But he started to fade, which worried his chief backer, John Thompson, who had wagered $1,000 on Burns to win. To try to help incentivize Burns, he paid him $150 to push harder. But later, Burns also took a $350 bribe to lose the race. He had been seen lagging behind, even though he looked fresh. After he lost, Thompson investigated, and the truth of the bribe came out. Burns and his trainer, Brooks, were both arrested and taken to the caboose, still in their skin-tight suits. Friends of the arrested men protested that the men would die, if kept in such a place after three days walking, and a guard was detailed to watch them in their rooms at a boarding house, but later they were taken to prison. Thompson wanted his $150 back. Burns was defiant and said that he would never give the money back. He said that he had rather go to the chain gang a dozen times than to give up. He asserted that Mr. Thompson offered him the $150 for a tip. Brooks agreed that there was no conditions put on the tip. The outcome of the trial is unknown. You would think that Burns would be run out of the sport, but no. A few months later, he's competing again. He ran many races in his hometown of Elmira, New York. He became a well-respected proprietor of the Columbia Hotel in Elmira. He died in 1914 at the age of 53. His obituary remembered his pedestrian feats. Mr. Burns's favorite racing was the go-as-you-please race. He was often matched against the most famous racers of their day. Not all the runners accepted the huge bribes that were offered. One particular pedestrian showed huge integrity. James Albert was from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He started his pedestrian career at the age of 22 in May 1879, when he achieved 450 miles at Philadelphia. He then started competing against the best ultra runners in the world, but became significantly injured and left the sport for a few years. 
1888, he was back and thought he could win a big-time international six-day race held in Madison Square Garden. After Albert had reached an amazing 545 miles on day five, he knew that breaking Patrick Fitzgerald's 610-mile world record was within reach. Bookmakers were distressed because they had offered such high odds at the beginning of the race on bets to those who thought that the world record would be broken. They were in danger of losing a fortune. Stories circulated that gamblers were going to try to poison Albert's food or cripple him in some way. But Albert's good-looking wife watched closely over her husband, and the only chance that they had left to prevent the record-breaking was to buy off the record-breakers. Sure enough, Albert was approached with bribes to stop short of the world record. He said, I was told that there was $10,000 waiting for me if I kept under 610 miles. They argued that this would be nearly double what I would receive from the race. But as I was not in the market, I declined the proposition. He passed over a dollar amount that today is valued at $312,000. Mrs. Albert added, They were bothering me too. I was asked to persuade him to take the biggest money and let the little go, but we want to leave this race with a good reputation, and Jim wouldn't take the thing. Policemen were placed on guard, but the bribers used unknown men to get into the quarters used by trainers and the runners. Efforts were made forcibly to remove Albert from the track, but those didn't work. Fourteen policemen were watching him, prepared to arrest the first individual who would make the slightest hostile demonstration. During the last evening, as word got out that Albert would likely break the record, Madison Square Garden was packed, and the excitement was intense. He broke the world record at 7.23 p.m. and kept going. A surging crowd followed Albert along the rails, cheering him on. The roof of Madison Square Garden shook with a shout, and went up as Albert passed the scorer's stand. At the end, he quit with two hours to spare, reaching 621 miles and immediately received congratulatory telegrams from some of the greatest ultra runners in the world. Albert, who believed his reputation and the world record was greater than an easy fortune, gave a humble speech at the finish, announcing his retirement from the sport because he was, quote, getting old now at age 38. He said... I wanted to make my final effort a good one. I knew I had to leave the track, and I wanted to leave my name on it. His wife was pleased. Mrs. Albert stood alongside her husband. She looked on him with pride. Her eyes danced with delight, and she could not conceal her emotion. Tears of joy filled her eyes. Three rousing cheers were given for Albert and his trainer and his wife. It was estimated that he received $5,800 for his win, far less than if he would have taken the bribe. Albert's retirement did not last long. After George Littlewood broke the world record with 623 miles later in the year, Albert wanted it back. In 1889, he entered a six-day race in San Francisco, California, and explained, My sole purpose in entering this race is to eclipse that and placed the record so high that it will not be touched for years to come. When I made the record in New York, I still had five hours to spare. Actually, he had two hours. And could have made 650 miles without trouble. Albert won the California race with 533 miles, but was far off the world record. 
It would not be until 1984 that the world record was broken again. Yanis Kuras shattered the record with 635 miles in New York City. After a couple more years, Albert finally retired from running. During his career, he invested his winnings wisely in real estate in Atlantic City, and by 1889, it was valued at $50,000, or $1.5 million today. He became very wealthy and developed the famed boardwalk area, funding the construction of a 1,200-foot iron pier out into the ocean that included a dancing hall. James Albert died on December 24, 1912, at the age of 56. It is believed that he died of a heart attack while alone in a small boat during a storm. He failed to return from his duck hunting trip in the evening. A search went out for him on Christmas Day. He was found lying face down in the boat anchored two miles from where he started out. He left behind an estate of $50,000 and left a generous amount to a hospital. Trainers were bribed too. In the 1881 O'Leary six-day race in Madison Square Garden, Dick LaCouse of Boston, Massachusetts claimed that one of his trainers was bribed $2,000 to drug him to make him fail. The first dose was administered a few hours before the race started on the pretense that it would settle his stomach. He alleged that his trainer used chloroform or psychic mixed with ginger ale purposely to make him unfit for the track throughout the race. LaCouse said, I covered 489 miles, yet was compelled to be off the track in all 54 hours with almost twice as much as any other man, so I feel confident that I was good for second, if not first place. On day four, the trainer took him off the track and gave him something that, quote, seemed to set his frame on fire, causing him to become feverish. Was it true or just an excuse? He finished in fourth place. At times, runners were so out of it that they accused their hard-working trainers, handlers, of being bribed to drug them. Patrick Fitzgerald was born in Ireland, and while an infant, his family moved to Canada. He immigrated to New York in 1864, became involved in city government, and was appointed the alderman of Long Island City in 1883. He became one of the fastest runners in the world, from 5 to 50 miles. Starting in 1879, he became a very experienced six-day runner, one of the early pioneers. In 1881, he broke the world record with 582 miles, but then lost it to George Hazel of England the next year with 600 miles. In 1884, Fitzgerald was determined to get the six-day world record back. During the late stages, he believed his highly experienced and well-respected trainer, Happy Jack Smith, of being bribed to drug him. It had been rumored that Charles Rowlsbacker had paid off Smith with $2,000 to do the dirty work. Fitzgerald's backer even got into an argument with Smith and threatened to fire him. Fitzgerald, in poor shape, heard the rumor, was distressed, and confronted Smith. The wise Smith knew that his runner needed to sleep and put him to bed. After an hour, he woke up, 
told him falsely that he had been sleeping for four hours. That worked. Fitzgerald's mind was cleared, and he apologized for doubting Smith. Fitzgerald went on to break the world record with 610 miles, beating Raoul by only eight miles. Fitzgerald had legitimate reasons for being paranoid during races. Once during a race, he was shadowed by a mysterious man in a cream-colored slouch hat. He was clad in a respectable suit of black and often carried a long cape over his shoulders. He had restless and piercing black eyes. He had never been known to speak to any person during a race, but always kept his eyes on the weakest looking man. When Fitzgerald started to fail, the man started to intercept him in his laps. He turned out to be a wealthy eccentric man from Harlem who would wager $10,000 that a pedestrian would die on the track. Fitzgerald used his riches to establish a training park, athletic hall, hotel, and a saloon in the Ravenwood neighborhood of Long Island. He died in 1900 of dropsy at the age of 55. Stay tuned for more ultra-running Stranger Things. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>